This is the Blue and Gold Podcast with Mitch Jim and Alexander Turner. This episode, I am honored to bring you Dr. Lawson Brigham. Dr. Brigham is a distinguished professor of geography and Arctic policy at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and a senior fellow at the Institute of the North. Currently, Dr. Brigham is a commissioner on the Alaska Arctic Policy Commission and a member of the U.S. delegation to the International Maritime Organization in London. Dr. Brigham was also a career U.S. Coast Guard officer serving from 1970 to 1995, commanding four Coast Guard vessels, including the Patrol Cutter Point Steel, the Great Lakes Icebreaker Mobile Bay, the Medium Endurance Cutter Escabana, the Polar Icebreaker, the Polar Sea. In his career, he participated in more than 12 Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. And a fun fact, a central peak in Victoria Land, Antarctica was named Mount Brigham in January 2008. Dr. Brigham, welcome to Blue and Gold Podcast. Thanks very much, uh, Midshipman Turner. I'm uh, pleased to be here. Well, thank you. I, I hope you enjoy your visit back to Annapolis, even though it's a little rainy today. I've yeah, been, been here many times in the past as a cadet at the Coast Guard Academy, sailing. I was an intercollegiate uh, sailor, and uh, the Crown Center was a new center then, back <laughs> in, the, in the late 1960s. Also came back, uh, I was on the faculty of the Coast Guard Academy, and I was the head sailing coach. So I came here many times for other meetings, and. Uh, involved now uh, with the Sailing Council at the Coast Guard Academy that's somewhat modeled after your FAILS committee uh, and uh, their involvement in uh, college sailing and offshore sailing. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you again. So Dr. Brigham, in the past two weeks, a team has finally located Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, closing out a nearly 100-year search. While many remember this age of exploration for the courage and excitement of expeditions led by the likes of Edmondson and Shackleton, this age was also critical in the development and experimentation of new naval technology. I was wondering if you could highlight any of these critical technologies and how they aid in studies today. Yeah, great question, because it's very relevant now with the, the finding of the uh, endurance at the bottom of the Weddell Sea, about 10, 000, two miles deep in the ocean. Uh, the ship that found it actually is uh, a modern icebreaking research ship, the Agugulhas from uh, South Africa's leading polar research vessel. Of course, they're using uh, UAVs and some sophisticated technology two miles down to, to uh, see the ship, and quite, quite amazing having the picture of the transom of the ship of the Endurance right there in front of us uh, 110 years later looks pretty pristine at, at the bottom of the ocean, very cold, of course, uh, little deterioration of the ship. So quite, quite amazing, but, but revolutionary technology, polar technology was used to find the ship, but the ship itself, the Gulhas, is a modern uh, icebreaking research ship designed and built in Finland for the South African Polar Environment uh, Department. Now, polar ships, uh, we had polar ships in the United States early on when we purchased Alaska in 1867. And the first ships there to enforce the laws to find out what we actually purchased from the Russians uh, was the Revenue Cutter Service, the uh, predecessor of the United States Coast Guard. And the ships then were our uh, 19th century polar ships, the Bear and the Cor Corwin, um, famous names of Coast Guard cutters that sailed in polar waters. Now, they weren't polar icebreakers per se, but they were polar ships because they was, could withstand the ice. They could be frozen in and, and survive better, better than the endurance, actually. And so there were early 
Polish ships to the United States as the United States became a Polish nation with, with the purchase of Alaska. Most of the early icebreakers were in the Baltic and in the Russian Arctic, the Baltic in particular, and Swedish and Finnish icebreakers early on, early in the 20th century to move cargo through the ice, uh, low powered, challenging for them to operate in the winter, not year round navigation, but nonetheless attempts to uh, penetrate the ice. Uh, then during the Second World War, the United States Coast Guard, in fact, had uh, eight icebreakers built mostly for service in Greenland. Several of the wind-class icebreakers, as they were named, south wind, east wind, west wind, north wind, um, they, they sailed around Greenland waters to keep uh, the Nazis and Germany out of, out of Greenland. Uh, they were mini kind of pocket uh, warships with guns, uh, and they were icebreakers, uh, small 269-foot ships, and they operated uh, through the 1980s down in Antarctica, up in the United States Maritime Arctic. Um, and so there, we, we had early icebreakers in fleet. And the intriguing thing is that several of these wind-class ice icebreakers were uh, operated by the Soviet Union and lend-lease during the Second World War. We lent, uh, President Roosevelt lent several of these icebreakers to the Soviet Union so they could move cargo in and around Murmansk and in the Russian Arctic, so quite. And then the, then the Soviet Union gave us back the ships in the early 1950s, and then we renamed them and, and uh, operated them as Coast Guard icebreakers. Those ships lasted until, oh, mid-'80s, and then uh, the United States built uh, two, uh, two icebreakers designed in the late 60s and, and operated it from 1975. The Polar Star and the Polar Sea were quite extraordinary ships, uh, in that they had a gas turbine power plant and diesel electric, so two power plants to generate 60,000 shaft horsepower, and that's one of the ships, the Polar Sea, that, that I commanded. In, in the early 60s, in fact 1959, the Soviet Union designed uh, and built the first nuclear surface ship, just after the Nautilus, of course, Nautilus being the famous uh, first nuclear Ship under uh, nuclear uh, ship under nuclear power, I should say, but the, they built the Lenin, the icebreaker Lenin, and and that was uh, really revolutionary for icebreaking ship. Unlimited power, unlimited unlimited endurance, could break four to five foot of ice continuously. So quite an extraordinary technological advancement by uh, the Soviet designers, particularly used for escorting ships. It was, an, it was really a re revolution for the ability to escort commercial ships, uh, mostly supplying the Soviet North. Uh, and that ship operated, now it's a museum in Murmansk, that ship operated until uh, uh, I think 1990. So for 30 years uh, it was quite, quite an extraordinary machine. The, the uh, Russians also evolved from the Lenin to a class of ships called the Arctica and the Sea Bear. Uh, ships about 23,000 tons, large uh, ships with twin nuclear reactors, all steam turboelectric. So we're producing steam, kind of like nuclear submarine or, or uh, of course, uh, nuclear aircraft carrier, producing a lot of steam to, produce, to uh, run the turbines, to produce electricity, to finally power the shafts. So, Quite, quite extraordinary uh, 
technological developments. The most recent developments have been two, two, three th different uh, types of ships. Tour ships designed as polar icebreaking ships under the new International Maritime Organization Polar Code, and, and uh, research vessels now, Korea, China, Japan, um, you name the country, the UK, a lot of non-Arctic countries, have all have icebreaking research ships that can operate both ends of the world. And then the third component, besides tourist ships and uh, icebreaking ships for research, are, of course, commercial icebreaking ships. They're designed, uh, some that ply in the Russian Arctic, LNG icebreaking carrier. Uh, some that ply and sail in the Canadian Arctic, carrying bulk ore out. They're designed as icebreakers, icebreaking ships that don't require escort. The LNG carriers are very interesting because the, the new ones operating out of the Russian Arctic, they're a triple screw, but all azipods, so independent uh, um, propulsion, electric propulsion units operating, and they, these ships can, or more than 100,000 tons, can break uh, three, four uh, feet of ice continuously without an icebreaker ahead of it. So extraordinary. So the real technological development is having commercial ships that can, can, can be economically viable operate in the ice potentially year-round, at least for a good part of the season. And so the technological advancements of polar-going ships has been quite extraordinary, at least since the time of uh, the 1950s up to today. So I'll leave it at that, but it's a new world of ships in the ice. Of course, I haven't spoken about ships under the ice, which uh, many of those uh, nuclear icebreakers and nuclear submarines can, uh, in fact, surface through the ice, so they have to be designed to operate in the Arctic, and the mariners and the sailors, officers and crew of those ships have to operate in polar waters as well, maybe more in the future. But they're uh, not surface ships, but uh, certainly the ultimate stealth weapon underneath the ice and uh, can surface when need be. So thanks very much for that great question. Excellent. So as you just shared with us, there's been a lot of research in the past decade and really development in these icebreaking technologies. So would you say that this has mostly been in the government realm for, as you said, the U.S. Coast Guard, Russian navies, or in the commercial in the past 10 or so years? And if so, why do you think now is the time for more icebreakers, or why are we seeing more icebreakers now? Yeah, it's, it, it's a good question. I would say um, in both realms, both government and, and, and the commercial world, but I, I would say really in the last two decades, it's the commercial world that has moved to design and build sophisticated polar ships to carry essentially natural resources out of the Arctic to global markets. And that's what's happening in the Russian Arctic today. That's what's happening in Canada. Uh, could happen in the U.S. That's what's happening even in uh, around Greenland. It, it's to carry bulk cargoes, whether they be oil, LNG, copper, nickel, tin, zinc, out, out, of, the, out of the American Arctic in, in uh, Alaska, we have the largest zinc mine in the world called the Red Dog Mine. And not necessarily ice breaking ships go there, but polar capable ships go there to pick up ore. So really it's the commercial world. On the government side, it, it has been um, mostly government research vessels, sophisticated, advanced uh, 
ice-breaking research vessel specifically dedicated to uh, polar science, again, both ends of the world, primarily in Antarctic to support um, Japan's, China's, uh, Korea, South Korea's, uh, you name the country who's part of the Antarctic Treaty, almost everyone has a research vessel that, that is, uh, not only conducts oceanographic and atmospheric science, et cetera, but is a supply vessel for their, uh, the Antarctic station. So again, government investment, U.S. Coast Guard, of course, uh, replacing the polar class with new icebreakers, now called uh, designated polar security cutters, which kind of gives you an idea of the emphasis on the new ships of the U.S. Coast Guard, which uh, not necessarily high-end combatant, but nonetheless, uh, uh, a naval ship of the United States with uh, modest weapon systems, but an icebreaking ship that can conduct the full range of uh, missions of the United States Coast Guard, in particular, uh, the sovereign presence of the United States, both ends of the world, as a naval vessel, but also as the federal, U.S. federal law enforcement ship of, uh, of the United States. So it's a mix, but it's interesting that the third tier, the one I mentioned already about polar tourism and having advanced polar icebreaking ships for tourism to take uh, uh, tourists uh, to both ends of the world, Last summer, a French advanced polar ship reached the North Pole carrying a bunch of tourists. So that tells you the the range of these ships today and and where they uh, where they may go in the future. Thanks. Excellent. It sounds like you're really highlighting the commercial and economic developments, I'll say. But in the future, will become more viable for many governments in this polar region. And so I'll ask next, with the conflict in Ukraine this past month, uh, has really highlighted Russia's importance in Europe as a world energy player, particularly the importance of Russian gas and how we've seen that affect crude oil prices. So one thing that is critical to continual Russian economic growth in the future is the Northern Sea Route. Previously, you said that it's unlikely that the Northern Sea Route will become a regular and reliable trans-Arctic trade route that could compete with the Suez or Panama Canal for global traffic. Do you think after the conflict in Ukraine, the Russian Federation will double down on efforts to increase the viability of the Northern Sea Route? Yeah, great question. Uh, I should put in a plug for the U.S. Naval Institute because you read my little piece there. (laughs) So uh, at the time of the Ever Given and stuck in the Suez Canal. The first folks that spoke up about that was uh, President Putin and his ministers who proclaimed, of course, the Northern Sea Route opened for uh, global trade. And and, uh, those of us who deal with this topic are interested in that topic and and interested in how it's framed and how it's marketed. The, The Northern Sea Route, to be more specific, is the Russia's national Arctic waterway primarily for two things, cabotage, internal traffic to support uh, the bases and and the cities along the Russian North, and also, of course, to carry uh, valuable natural resources out of the Russian Arctic to global markets, whether they be in Europe or in Asia, in in the Pacific. Uh, So so I I think there's some misunderstanding of the the use of the Northern Sea Route. In fact, uh, 
The name of the Northern Sea Route isn't the entire space across the top of Eurasia. That's the Northeast Passage is the, the name for going from uh, Bering Strait and the Pacific to the Atlantic if you want to make a transit across the top of the world, across the top of Eurasia. It is a Northeast Passage by law in, the Russian, uh, in Russian law. The Northern Sea Route has a specific definition from the Kara Sea east to Bering Strait. But putting that aside, it, for the Russian Arctic, it's all about economics. It's all about the GNP. It's all about sell, selling, as you suggested, oil and gas, maybe coal, to the world. Um, you mentioned gas. Most of the gas in Western Siberia comes by pipeline to Europe, particularly uh, Germany. So that's the quagmire we are in with uh, particularly Germany, but most of Europe rely, relying on um, natural gas. So the future of gas and the Russian Arctic, certainly more by ship, will be carried eastward. Uh, certainly pipelines will continue to take gas um, to Europe, but ships will carry LNG out of the Gulf uh, the Ob Gulf, Western Siberia, where the uh, LNG facilities are, mostly to China, long-term contracts, maybe Japan and Korea, but mostly to, to Asian markets. So these LNG carriers and new ones to come, fleet of ships, the Russians will work very hard to keep year-round navigation to the east, um, and that's the difficult part. In fact, last uh, November through January, all the news media had a fair number of ships, some 20 commercial ships stuck in the ice in the East Siberian Sea and had to be rescued over several weeks' time by the Russian nuclear icebreaker fleet. So it isn't yet a seamless integrated marine transportation system, kind of like the Suez Canal, a Panama Canal, as Mr. Putin would think. It, it's a long long haul to get it to be a viable um, marine transportation route, particularly for uh, resources. And the, the, the question you're really getting about, I think, is that uh, east-west trans, uh, transarctic navigation. Uh, and that's the specter that's, that's the subject that's covered in the media quite extensively. Uh, and, and there's a fair amount of hype and misinformation about it for the uh, for transarctic navigation, you have to remember that the Arctic Ocean is ice-covered. Uh, it is ice-covered, partially or fully ice-covered, six to eight months out of the year, mid-century and beyond. Despite the profound uh, change in uh, sea ice, and I say profound, forced by anthropogenic climate change, forced by uh, greenhouse gas emissions, translates, of course, to sea ice retreat. It is extraordinary. My particular background is as a sea ice oceanographer. So I, I understand quite clearly that uh, the ice is retreating in thickness, extent, uh, and the character of the ice is changing from multi-year ice, the ice that has survived uh, over the season to the next, to all first-year ice, just like ice in the Baltic Sea or the Great Lakes. Uh, so at some, some point in time, 2040, 2045, the uh, Arctic Ocean will be ice-free for a short period of time. But it doesn't mean it would be ice-free for year-round navigation. So the challenges are using the Arctic Ocean, 
with advanced ice-breaking ships extending the navigation season and seeing if, if, if for transarctic navigation there are some economically viable opportunities to carry uh, specific cargo. So niche markets maybe even carry in, in the summer, uh, let's say, cars across the Arctic Ocean uh, to Europe. It's possible. Uh, it, it's plausible. Uh, but there are a lot of challenges for the environment. Uh, think about the Russian Arctic, you think about the whole Arctic, in many respects, setting aside the geopolitical military security issues, all about economics, all about global commodities. There's a lot of stuff up in the top of the world. Uh, and not only oil and gas, and just, uh, just another comment about oil and gas, the future is not bright for taking oil and gas out of the Arctic. Why? Uh, mitigation efforts, global attempts to go to renewable energy, um, teasing away from, particularly oil and coal, the, 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 the uh, two commodities with the most, uh, the highest uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But the gas will be around for a long time, and the Russians uh, have a lot of gas, the largest natural gas deposits in the world in Siberia. And so uh, they'll, they'll be around a long time. And some of it will be shipped, certainly pipeline, others by ship to the east. So complicated, complicated issue. Uh, Ukraine presents uh, great uh, challenges and uncertainties uh, in, uh, in the future of the Arctic, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, that's amazing. As you just highlighted, despite new technologies, retreating ice due to climate change, these are still very treacherous waters for many. I mean, you highlighted the amount of ships that got stuck just this past few years. You have gone on many Arctic and Antarctic expeditions in your career um, and commanded two icebreakers. So you have more than a special insight on operating in these types of treacherous waters. What are some of the difficulties operating in these waters, and how did you as a commanding officer and as a researcher um, fight through them? You know, unique challenges uh, being a commanding officer or even serving as a uh, enlisted or officer on a polar icebreaking ship. What was operating nearly 95% of the time independent of any other, other ships, particularly Coast Guard uh, icebreakers ice and cutters normally operate around the world, independent operations, not with a battle group or, or a fleet of ships. So, so just that, wherever you go, you know you're alone in, in the remotest, remotest parts of the world. And down in Antarctica, where we're breaking ice, for example, we, we, we would go to places where there are very few uh, uh, soundings. In fact, the British charts had on them Captain Cook's soundings, you know, where he did use a lead line down to the bottom of the ocean. So, so the idea of operating a large ship, my case, a 31-foot draft, um, in remote waters with no charts is, is quite, quite the unusual challenge. And ships uh, ground all the time around the world, even submarines have, of course, on uncharted reefs and seamounts, et cetera. But, but most of the places we go with the polar icebreaker is on the continental shelf, and so there are shallow waters. Several times, just to give one little sea story, we would send out a survey vessel ahead of the ship 
before we would go to an area where some of the scientists wanted to sample and, and gather in some data, well, we, there were no soundings on the chart because the, primarily because the uh, glacier had retreating, retreated a few miles, and so we wanted to go there for scientific reasons. So th 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 that's one of the challenges. But being remote, and of course, having a high-powered icebreaker, some places where we went, you wouldn't want to use all of the power of the ship because you would get stuck, and you might be there a long time. <laughs> and that's one of the challenges, always thinking ahead. Where are you going? What are the, uh, how can you extract yourself, particularly in the ice? And, and you don't want to damage, uh, have any damage on any ship anytime when you're commanding officer, of course, but in the polar regions, you damage a screw or the rudder in particular. The ship I was on had triple screws, uh, controllable pitch propellers and, and a single rudder so you could maybe backing into the ice or something to damage the rudder so we we had on occasion for these polar icebreakers the rudder was kind of wedged hard over either to starboard or port so it's not easy to sail a ship along in a straight line if you have the rudder over so these are the kinds of things and the kind of damage uh, that you could uh, incur that that in a remote region like this particularly with the ship that we had, uh, very few ships could come to extract us. So you have to think ahead. The other thing is about your people. Uh, maybe the most important thing to, to remember, you have people flying, going out on the ice, taking data with scientists, uh, going to a remote camp, uh, flying in uh, weather that had icing, et cetera, et cetera. Cold, unforgiving environment for your people. So we always have to think again, not only extracting the ship, but, but taking care of your people and extracting them in a situation where uh, you can't leave them out when the temperature's minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So watching over your people in the polar regions, scientific party, ship's company, and boats, wherever they're operating, it's, it's an unforgiving cold environment where, where you know that hypothermia can set in. Everybody's properly dressed and have all the right gear and the survival equipment and everything, but, but, but it is something to think about because nobody else is around. We, we usually carry two helicopters and um, usually only deploy one uh, because if, if the one went down or, or couldn't lift off wherever they went to some rural camp, at least we have a second helicopter to go. Occasionally we would send both helicopters to do a job or uh, support an operation, so it's, it's people looking after the ship, operating in a remote environment. And a few times, I mean, it's so remote, but not quite remote. We had uh, in McMurdo Sound, uh, Antarctica, U.S. base, we had troubles with our gas turbines. So, y y you know, the uh, gas turbine folks uh, from, um, I'm trying to think of the company, they sent a, the world's leading gas turbine expert all the way to Antarctica so he could work with the crew. So getting specific uh, gear and supporting it logistically at far ends of the world, wherever you are, is very difficult. We, we had these two helicopters and they had uh, essentially uh, um, uh, fiber optic or, or uh, plastic uh, rotor blades. And so we would land the helicopters on uh, gravel or runways or platforms and invariably would pick up and, and pit the blade so we had to order up 
um, Coast Guard helicopter, Dolphin helicopter blades all the way to wherever it was in North Carolina at the base. And, and I ordered up like a dozen or so, and they had about 20 in the whole Coast Guard <laughs> spares. So that the, the logistics, logistics train, either in the Arctic around Alaska or out in the Central Arctic Ocean or particularly down in Antarctica, getting people and gear and replacements, um, hard to do. Now, we had uh, enough food on the ship for seven, eight months in case we got stuck in the ice and had to be there a while. There was uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of supplies on the ship when we left uh, Seattle to go to Antarctica for a five-month trip. So, again, the logistics of it was something uh, unique to a polar ship um, where you had to think about if, uh, if you did get stuck and were there a while, well, you got to take care of everyone. And the, the other n- unique thing about the ship is it's all climate-controlled ship, of course, heated and um, air conditioning, of course, you go across the equator and th- across the, uh, to get there uh, to Antarctica. But the unique thing is that when you're operating the ship with minus 50 outside along the Ross Ice Shelf, for example, we could feel the ship getting cool inside, and so the, although the ship is designed for polar regions, it just quite, quite could not keep up with uh, a temperature like minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So unique challenges. We all had our our uh, field jackets on, et cetera, on the ship, so kind of unique unique situations. But uh, great challenge, uh, extraordinary machines, and uh, requires uh, for the future of Coast Guard officers that operate, um, the new icebreakers, a, a unique experience and uh, great challenge. Well, thank you. That was amazing. You're one of the few to have that much experience in the region, and I mean, you don't get to hear those types of stories from many. So thank you for that. Yeah, a small small club of people uh, still today. Uh, Russian nuclear icebreaker captains and uh, icebreaker captains, commercial ship captains are very experienced there, and Canadian some Canadian captains and the captains and the crew of these research vessels that deploy worldwide as aboard Chinese icebreaking ship the. Zhu uh, Long and uh, talked to the captain. This is in Shanghai in their base and uh, experienced. Uh, and, and these folks normally from these foreign countries are uh, commercial opera, commercial merchant m- marine officers who serve as the captains. And they stay there for 20, 30 years, of course, in our service uh, and, of course, in the Navy and Coast Guard. People are rotating around. It's very important for the uh, Coast Guard officers and particularly the engineers. And, and the deck officers to uh, have previous polar experience and hopefully command experience to uh, command the larger ships of the Coast Guard. Most definitely. So, sir, ultimately the Blue and Gold podcast is a podcast by midshipmen and for midshipmen. You have had a long and distin- distinguished career in and by the water. As will many of the listeners of this podcast, what advice would you give to some of the midshipmen tuning in for this episode as they prepare for the, a career in the Naval Service? Yeah, going to, um, going to sea is, of course, challenging, interesting experience, very, very demanding, of course, for everyone on the ship. Uh, the junior officers play a critical role in, in um, of course, standing watch in the bridge and in engineering. Uh, it's an important role. Um, I, my advice to you would be give you the, the core values of, of the Coast Guard, which are uh, honor, 
and respect and devotion to duty, which should sound very familiar to you in the Navy, being honor and courage and commitment. Very, very similar words, both beginning, both values uh, beginning with the word, of course, honor and integrity. Uh, but, the, but it's more than that. It's communication ability and transparency, uh, honesty with your command and with your people, uh, leading people at sea is, of course, uh, very challenging because they're away from their families and, and friends for uh, long periods of time. So it is a great challenge to lead young people in the 21st century uh, aboard a ship. Uh, back in the sailing days, it was maybe a little easier. It took uh, sailors to sea, and some came back, some did not. But uh, today, the world is connected from a communication standpoint, and everyone knows what is happening the family. So leading the people at sea is, is a real challenge. Very important for the junior officers to, uh, either in the Navy, of course, Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard, to listen to your uh, senior enlisted personnel, uh, particularly on a ship, li li listening to the experienced mariners, the uh, chief petty officers who uh, understand the demands and the challenges of sea throughout their careers. So a lot to be learned by the junior officers from the CPO mess. I, I, I would say it is a great, you know, the commanding officers of these ships uh, in the Navy and the Coast Guard uh, have two major responsibilities. One, of course, is to conduct the mission, uh, go in harm's way, uh, sail with resilience and uh, but also the second challenge is to bring your people home, of course. The safety of the, of the crew is paramount uh, along with the conduct of the mission. So for junior officers, supporting the command, supporting all of your people is, uh, uh, is, is the important aspect of being uh, on, a sh on a ship at sea. Great, great challenges and um, great rewards from that experience. I think you, you sail a ship and uh, there are two things that come, come out of it really from my experience is uh, first, the accomplishments of where you go, what you do. Uh, it's a great sense of satisfaction. What, whatever the mission is, and particularly our, our, ours was on the Polar Sea, down in Antarctica was supporting the United States effort there, scientifically breaking ice, bringing in the the uh, tanker and the uh, support vessels. Gr gr great sense of accomplishment over a five, six month period of operations. And then the second one is, I think, for, for all ships, particularly in the naval services, is the uh, working in a, a close-knit team, a team of people. There can be no closer team of people uh, than on a ship. Uh, the team, every person, as, as you all have been exposed to every person on the ship, every uh, sailor, every officer, uh, chief petty officer, etc. Everyone is responsible for the safety of the ship and for every other of the crew member. So it, 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 it is uh, great working with the team and when it all goes right and goes well. When it goes wrong, of course, you have to make corrections, but when it goes well, there's tremendous uh, personal satisfaction by everyone. I used to tell the uh, crew members who would come aboard and come into the cabin of the ship to meet the, their new captain and me meet them. Uh, these young people are 18 to 20 years old. 
I say, well, we're, we're going to go on a, a cruise for six months. You'll be involved in this, uh, the operations of this big ship. I'm at the top. You're, you're at the bottom starting out. It's a tight-knit group of people. Everybody was responsible. Your work is essential to, to the ship's success. But I also told them that on this great adventure, of course, who else does this? Who goes to Antarctica? Who has this great experience of going to sea? Uh, it may be one of the greatest experiences in your life. You know, you have children, you get married, you get education, but who, who goes to Antarctica? Who goes to sea uh, and does great stuff uh, and has this opportunity as a young person? So while it's challenging working in this tight-knit group with a hierarchy in the military, uh, it's still a, a, a worthwhile experience that uh, you'll remember the rest of your life. Whether you stay in the Coast Guard or the Navy, you'll always remember the experience of sailing at sea. So I, I just end with uh, congratulating the class of uh, 22. Uh, thank all of you in the brigade for coming to this, uh, one of America's greatest, greatest institutions. Uh, you've took up the challenge and we all await your uh, dedicated and distinguished service to not only the world's greatest Navy, but uh, of course to all of us in the country. Thanks very much for having me today. Uh, uh, Midshipman Turner, I enjoyed it very much. Well, thank you, sir. It's been an honor. And on behalf of the Blue and Gold team, let me thank you for coming and joining me today. Someone of your honor, caliber, and most importantly, to share your wisdom and advice for us is truly unparalleled. I can't think of another opportunity like this. So thank you. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it very much. This has been the Blue and Gold Podcast.